Hello, everybody. Hello. So I'm Josie. I hope the accent is not too much. My brother has recently moved to America, and there's been a lot of chat about his twang. <laughs> so um, I really hope that I don't twang anything and say, yeah. We say, yeah, in South Africa. Um, but it is just a joy to be with you all tonight. Um, last week was my first time at Genesis, so tonight's your first night. Next week you could be preaching. That's the moral of the story here. Um, although it is my, only my second time here, I kind of feel like I was part of one of the first invitations that went out for this community. I was in Costa Mesa in 2017, staying with Chris and Meryl, and I spent time with Dana and Stu, and Meryl and Chris were taking me to the airport, and we stopped at a shop, and Meryl, as only she can so charmingly do, invited the shop assistant to join the community, which hadn't yet begun. And I remember thinking like, oh, like, it's happening. Because I knew that it was kind of in their hearts. And so she was maybe one of the first invitees. And just to think of all the other invitations that have gone out to fill this room with all of you is a rather amazing thought. I also met many of you in Portugal last year, as Dana mentioned. And so to come all the way from Cape Town, which is a 15-hour flight and then a six-hour flight, so it's really far away, and to find myself in amongst people who I just love and I feel at home with and who are following Jesus passionately is like a totally unique and remarkable thing. So that's really awesome. So what am I going to share with you today? Well, I guess the first thing I just want to mention is um, this line of poetry by the 14th century poet um, Hafiz, and he said, oh, it's not that. That's C.S. Lewis. <laughs> uh, I'll get there. But he said this thing that really has just framed how I feel like I'm seeing all of my life and what it means to share the word of God with you today, and I think it's cool for you guys to think about your lives in the same way. He basically said, I am a hole in the flute that the Christ's breath moves through. And I just love that, like, we are not the instrument, we are not the key or the spring or the screw, we are like the negative space that just creates the conditions for the breath of Christ to move through and to create music and noise and sound. And so the cool thing is, like, there's no need to be afraid of, like, sharing with you and not actually knowing many of you. It's like the breath of Christ is moving here and let's hear what he has to say. The second thing I just want to mention is I know that one of your pillars here is story, and stories matter. And Chris often talks about model and message. So what is your life and what is your message? And I guess I would rather just dive straight into the scriptures and not talk about story, because I think you know it's, it's nuanced and you don't fully know me. But actually, the stuff I'm going to share with you today is stuff that I am living and have lived, and it's coming out of a place of deep questioning and deep wrestling with God. Um, and it's not religious or regurgitated tradition that I'm coming to you with because that would be very stale and very lame. So one of the details of my story that I just think is relevant for today um, is the fact that I'm a pastor's kid. So I grew up in the church. My dad and my mom went into ministry when I was about four years old. My only sibling, Matthew, is here. We grew up together in the church and... Um, I think, you know, I was a good kid. I never really rebelled. I kind of felt like rebellion was a lot of effort when, like, you could just be happy and please people that were in the church. It was like, why do I need to make a big fuss, you know? But I didn't really know God. He wasn't fully real to me. I, I thought he was great. I thought Jesus was, like, totally real and awesome. But it was like, there, there wasn't a genuine sense of, like, God is my father and this is my choice. Um, and so I often say that, you know, I said the sinner's prayer when I was like five years old. I got baptized at 16. But I only came to know God as my father when I was turning 19. I took a, a gap year and I went to New York City. And, um, yeah, that was just the place where I felt like I encountered God. And funny enough, prior to that year, I was in my final year of high school. 
And I remember thinking, and actually writing down the words and praying the prayer of, God, if I go to New York and it's terrible and really hard, but I come out of it actually knowing who you are for me and not for my parents or my community, I will be grateful. And it turned into a really tough experience and it was yet the most beautiful, spacious place where I found that God was my father. At the time when that was all happening, I had continued to, uh, well, I had seen and I still continue today to see a lot of Christians become lukewarm in their faith. They either walk away from God, they travel with sin, compromise on their obedience and devotion to Jesus, and in turn that compromises their connection with him and their wholeness and community. This is most people's story. They glimpse Jesus and then they kind of get distracted and he becomes familiar and then they walk away. And I remember thinking, like, that's why it says that the road is narrow and few find it. And, like, there's a lot of you in this room. Will all of you make it to, like, to the point where you see Jesus face to face one day and you're not filled with terror but, like, deep joy? And that was really the, the thing that was bugging me. Like, am I someone who's going to know Jesus all my life so that when I meet him one day, he is my friend and not this, like, stranger who I thought I knew? And one of my thoughts, which, and, you know, I don't want to... If, if any of you have, you know, backtracked or had your own story, this is not like a con- condemning thing. But I remember just thinking when I was about 18, to be a washed out pastor's kid who like walked away from the faith and it was all too familiar, was just so boring and vanilla. Like, like truly, what a, where are the people with conviction and passion? Like compromise and apathy is an everyday thing. Every, like most people are living in that state. And um, apathy is mainstream. Like, I don't want to be mainstream. (laughs) And I just thought to myself as a young girl, like, where are the people who have peace that surpasses understanding? Where are those that have joy unquenchable, trust immovable, relationships where grace and forgiveness abound? People who have seen God provide in the 11th hour, people who live expecting miracles, people who have said hard no's to unhelpful but really, like, tempting things and who are available to then receive the fullness and goodness of God's provision and blessing. People whose lives count for eternity and not just for now. Like, where are they hiding? I think many of them are in this room, but they're not, like, they're not out there. And we grew up in a church environment and culture where Christianity was, was the norm, but it wasn't real. And so I often say the miracle of my life is not that I went from extreme drug addiction to salvation, it's that I went from familiarity with Jesus to really knowing him. Because I think that is often where there is people who just, they fall off the wagon. And that is God's grace to me. Okay, C.S. Lewis, thank you very much. As he said famously, and I think I've preached and used this quote a lot of times, but anyways, it says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. As a young girl, and even now, I knew that I wanted to live a life of passion and holiness and closeness with God to fight cultural temptations so that I would find the life that is promised to us in the Bible, life in abundance. And while I mentioned that I didn't really rebel and I was well behaved, what I found that was really disappointing was my good works actually weren't enough. Like being a really good pastor's kid wasn't enough. 
It didn't get me over the line to knowing God for myself. He had to come in and show me the reality of his stunning face. Like, Jesus has a face. It's talked about in Revelation. Like, his eyes are a blaze of fire. His hair is white as wool. He was a man that walked on the earth, and I, I lived in a very shallow understanding of that, and he wasn't very real to me. When I, um, when I was in New York, I remember memorizing the words of Spurgeon where it says, how beneficial are our trials when they carry us aloft where we may gain clearer sights of Jesus than ordinary life could afford us. And that is the tough thing, is like sometimes it takes trials to carry us above the things of this world to see Jesus for who he is. Something that I think is just worth kind of throwing out there just as a food for thought for all of you as individuals is often in our journey of knowing God and walking in faith and community, we we get to know the different persons of the Trinity at different times. So I think for me, New York was like my God is my father moment. A couple years after that, through community and through specific friendships and experiences, I began to realize that the Holy Spirit is very real and he is a person and I can commune with him. And he became very real to me. And I would say that in the last 18 months, I've become acutely aware of Jesus' face and how compelling it is. I've spent a long time thinking that I know him when it's been a really surface knowing, as I've mentioned. And the revelation that I had over this time is that for me, Jesus is the stumbling block. It's not the Holy Spirit and it's not God. And I think for our culture, that's really important to recognize because we're, ve- we're becoming very flex with Holy Spirit, God. You know, things are getting super spiritual in our culture. And that's cool. I think God can break in. But as Christians, like, do we understand that Jesus is the door? He is the one that died for us. Like, we can't just get to God with our own works and righteousness. That was my temptation is, oh, I can be good and well-behaved and like not do anything wrong, but that's not enough. And I think that we live in a performance-driven, knowledge-indulging, sin-flirting and eternity-forgetting generation. And thus, I think many Christians like me are at risk of thinking they know and love Jesus fully when in fact it's a surface level and very weak affection. And there is a whole ocean of, of knowing him that we can tap into. This actually came up a lot for me last year in Portugal. I think I was brewing on some of this stuff before that, and then DJ preached on Jesus. Simply Jesus, his death, life, his birth, death, resurrection, and life in the mix. And as he was preaching, I just thought like, flip, I don't know how well I know him. And I came back home, and I remember sitting in a service about the crucifixion, and I, I wept through the whole service as if I'd never heard it before. And I've been in church my whole life. I've probably listened to like 10,000 hours of sermons. <laughs> uh, maybe I should do the maths, probably not. But, but I, just, I just wept because it was like Jesus is so beautiful and I'd overlooked, overlooked that. Christian Wyman writes in his book, My Bright Abyss, he says, even when Christianity is the default mode of a society, Christ is not. And I think that's my question to us, and that's the question to me. That's why this is coming out of a personal experience. It's like, Christianity is my default mode. I pretty much don't know anything else. Like, if you put me in a situation where there's, like, drugs happening or, like, a lot of people drinking, I honestly get a bit like, oh, I don't, I don't know how to act or fit. Put me in a church. I'm like, cool, I get this. I know this. I grew up in this. But even when Christianity is my default mode, is Christ my default mode? 
The words of Jesus in Matthew 13, which really ring out in my ears, is when he's quoting Isaiah and he says, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But, says Jesus, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and for your ears, for they hear. Okay, now I can kind of get into my passage and move on from this. Um, so just to give a few sentences about what's happening in this community, you're going from a series in First John that you've just closed off to a series in Philippians. And I kind of prepared the bones of this message and then I realized, oh, this is actually, it bridges nicely, um, which is great. So First John is all about love and it's quite... Yeah, it's a great book um, about the love of God, how we call to love one another, about truth and error and light and darkness and overcoming sin. And it's a super challenging book. And then in Philippians, it's really a book about the life of Christ. It traverses his life and a story, his story, which is one of humility and obedience to God as opposed to a personal pursuit of glory and comfort and prestige. And it encourages us to take heart in our suffering and to imitate Jesus in order to find contentment and purpose in him. Why I think what I want to share today is important is because Jesus must be the bridge linking this, these things of moving from love to perseverance. He has to be the center all the time of it all. Otherwise, we'll default to living by our own strength, by our own righteousness, by our own effort, and that would be a huge mistake. Something that I've had to make peace with um, as a 21st century person is the idea of returning. So we're not stoked on the idea of returning and repeating things like new experiences, new people, new information, new content, new everything. And the thing about following God is it's like, are you going to return again and again to the place where he is? It's often like the mundane, getting on your knees regularly, reading his word. It's what we know. And yet like you scratch at that surface and then you just access deeper and deeper and deeper truths and life. And so nothing I'm going to say to you today is going to be particularly new or novel. You know, sometimes you want to dazzle with special intellect and really cool exposition of the scriptures. And uh, I think, in fact, our spirit longs to testify to the things of old and the secrets of true life, the mysteries that are kind of at our fingertips, but that we often just like gloss over because we're pumped on the new stuff. Um, and so I'm going to read to us today from Psalm 63. Um, you're welcome to open to it. It is on the screen. And also, you're welcome to just close your eyes and listen to the words in the hopes that they go a little bit beyond our, our initial psyche. Okay. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy." My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. 
but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of lies will be stopped. Okay, so there's so much that we can glean from this psalm, tons, um, but I picked out a couple of main points that I just feel that God wants to highlight. I've obviously been praying for you guys, um, so let's hope that, that something's at home. Um, just to just to preface this with a word about the author. So this is David speaking. He's in the wilderness and he is crying out to God and seeking God with all of his heart. So of all the biblical characters, we know that David really loved God. He knew God. God was his friend. He knew him deeply. Um, But the thing is, like, that didn't stop him from falling on his face and crying out, oh my God, I seek you with all that I am. I I thirst and hunger for you. And... um, I've been personally challenged by this because I think, again, the nuance here is, like, do we fall into the trap of thinking, like, oh, I know the depths of Jesus. Like, if you're seeking him, I'm sure you know him. Like, I'm not doubting that. But, like, do you understand that his depths are unsearchable? Like, unsearchable. We'll never get to the bottom of who he is. Another amazing example of this is Paul, who says in Philippians, which you're about to get into, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him unto his death. This is after the Damascus Road experience. Paul has had this flash of light from heaven. He's gone blind for a couple of days. He heard the audible voice of Jesus saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He then has his whole life irrevocably changed, and he doesn't say, I know Christ. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. For every moment and experience of Jesus, we must remember that there is more and we must pursue him over and over again. In the King James version of this psalm, in verse 8, it says, My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. And so the question is, again, does your soul follow hard after God? In John 17, again, we are reminded, it says, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That is life eternal. It's pretty much nothing else eternal. Like, that is, that is it. Okay, so my first kind of key takeout from this is that seeking God always begins with him seeking us. David says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. And I read this um, line a couple of years ago. I don't know where I read it, but it's always stuck with me. It said, it is impossible to seek God, for to seek him is to already have found him. And I was so challenged because I thought, wow, that really takes the, like, the responsibility off of us to, to find him. Like He's already pursuing us. And then Tozer, what a wonderful man, writes, we pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us on to this pursuit. No man can come to me, said our Lord, except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And it is by this, by this very prevenient drawing that God takes from us every vestige of credit for the act of coming. The impulse to pursue God originates with God, but the outworking of that impulse is our following heart after him. All the time we are pursuing him, we are already in his hand. Thy right hand upholdeth me. My second key takeout is that the presence of God transforms the wilderness into a sanctuary. It says from verse 2, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. The thing about the wilderness, number one, 
you know, you can have difficult moments which feel like a wilderness, but in reality, I think earth is a bit of a wilderness. Like, we are not in heaven. We are on earth, and the earth has fallen. And so there's always room for us to experience the wilderness. Um, but often that's what is required to create the conditions to find Jesus in his sanctuary and to behold his power and glory. Um, I can't remember what I said earlier about, oh, how beneficial are our trials that carry us aloft. This is that. So ideally, we're always in a posture of being on our knees, seeking and beholding Jesus, but often it takes a bit of pain, discomfort, and suffering to create the conditions in which we can glimpse him more fully. And so if you're in a wilderness season, be encouraged, take courage. God is with you, and he is able to reveal himself to you in ways that he wouldn't be able to if things were just all going perfectly smoothly. And I speak from experience. Thirdly, a word about what we look to to satisfy our souls. So in verse 5, David says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Do we believe that everything that we desire and long for can be found in Jesus, can be satisfied by him? I, I, don't, I gave this a bit of thought. I kind of came down to the, the idea that like, I don't know how to communicate to you what it's like to sit with Jesus. If any of you have done that, you'll know that it is the most incredible thing to behold his face to experience the, the burning away of all of your anxieties and like everything becoming obsolete in the light of his glory and grace. Like turn your eyes upon Jesus, the hymn says, look full in his wonderful face and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And um, I, I can say this because I know what it was like to not have this. And I longed for it, like the whole time in high school when I was like, God, where are you? And even when I met God, I was like, cool, this is awesome. And then suddenly I realized, like, I haven't experienced the person of Jesus for myself, really. Like, who is he? What is he like? What's his personality like? Like, what would he say to me in this moment? Do I turn to him like I turn to a friend, like pick up my phone, you know, the moment something is starting to go wrong, you're like, who can I phone? And like, it's cliche maybe, but like really, what is he like to be with in my deepest, darkest moments and in my best moments of deep joy? On Wednesday night, I joined Dana and Stu's home group or table community, as you call it here. And we talked a little bit about the end of first, we talked a lot about the last chapter of first John. And Dana pointed out that at the last line, he says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And as mature and maturing Christians, it's really important that we develop a really uh, good sense, a robust sense for what our culture's fixations are and what our personal um, obsessions and security satiation methods are. You see, we use idols to, um, and consumptive practices to satiate our longing for Jesus. And I just had this phrase going around in my head as I was thinking about it this week that like sometimes we feel that longing, like we have an itch in our spirit, like, oh, something is off, Some, we need something. And then you go out and you get like a latte. I don't know, what do you guys get here? In South Africa, you go out and get a steak. <laughs> People are really into red meat. And, and honestly, like honestly, tell me it's not true that your longing will be satisfied for a moment. Like it goes away. But the thing is, like repeatedly doing that, I'm not saying don't eat for the rest of your life. Like if we just uh, wash that away with consumptive things, I wonder if our longing will ever disappear. It might. But to say like, actually no, like 
what I'm sensing in my spirit, and the Holy Spirit can reveal this stuff to us, like what I'm sensing right now is that I need the Lord. Like I need him to come near to me. That's what I actually need. And then to carve out the time and to do that and to find him. We spoke about how one of the ways you can find your idols is by following your fears. And I think we make all sorts of things into like our fixations, like strange things and obvious things, our stuff, our clothes, our intelligence, our gifting, our education, our sexual desires and needs, our careers, our athleticism. We even make idols out of our woundings, strange as that may sound. We have to ask ourselves, if this particular thing was taken away from me, would I be free or would I be lost? I wanted to mention, I thought it would be great if I can get a demonstration, but Delta, Dana and Stu's wonderful daughter, has this thing called her sleep sack. And the sleep sack <laughs> is her security blanket. And she needs that thing all the time. And if it's not in sight, I start to panic. <laughs> because Delta is freaking out that she needs her sleep sack. But this thing was Leander's ages ago. Now it's hers. She's outgrown it. There's holes in it. It's dirty. It gets dragged through everything. It's disgusting. <laughs> and she completely loses it when she doesn't have the sleep sack. And I just have thought, like, aren't we like that with God and our stuff? He's like, hey, I want to take away your past. I want to take away your sin. I want to take away the thing you're ashamed of. Like, I want to take away your wounding from your childhood like, and give you something new that hasn't got holes in it, that actually fits you and the person you're becoming. And we're like, no, like, please. Like, that's all I know. That's all I am is my wounding. It's all I am is my like, charismatic personality that gets a kick out of like, making fun of people because everyone thinks it's cool. And he's like, I can, I can help you. Like, let me take it away. And we just cling on for dear life, like throwing a fit. And anyone else who's looking on is like, you should just let it go. You know, for the benefit of everyone, just let it go. <laughs> Delta is two. <laughs> She's two, and she is the best. I don't know if you've read, um, I think it's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's one of the Narnia books, and there's a story about Eustace, who's the boy who's in a dragon skin, and Aslan has to unzip him. I'm not going to read the whole thing because time, but I encourage you to go Google just the story and how he's freaking out because Aslan is like unzipping this dragon skin off of him and he's in so much pain, but it, it comes off eventually and he is returned to the boy that he was always meant to be. We touched also a little bit on Wednesday night about the idea that sometimes when our, our obsessions and our fixations are attacked or they fall off of their pedestal, uh, it's really terrifying and we can think God's abandoned us and we haven't got what we thought we needed, but actually sometimes in God's mercy, that is him allowing our circumstance to dismantle our idols for us. I wouldn't be go so far as to say he's always pushing over stuff in our lives to like help us. He's not like that, but life happens. And if you know God and you're walking with him, there's a beautiful redemptive thing that happens where actually you get to see, hey, that was a really big idol for me and it's now gone and it was flipping scary, but it's okay. And God is with me. I heard a line earlier this year. I think it was in, in Cape Town in February. Rob Hutton preached. Either was a group setting. Anyway, he said this line that has really stuck with me. It was, the level of your spiritual maturity can be determined by how much it takes to steal your joy. And I was like, yup. <laughs> Thanks. See you later, you know. Let me go think about that for a bit. And that's, yeah, I just felt like I should mention that, like what is stealing a joy and like, you know, it's not necessary that it does that. Um, it's okay to be afraid, but let us not give up our joy too quickly. Okay, verse six, it says, 
Um, well, verse five says, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Uh, and then six, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. My question, again, to myself, to us, what are we doing in the watches of the night? Like, I know we're tired and we have lots going on, but like, there is time to seek God. And um, I just think, like, what if we took that hour that we were going to watch a show and, like, you just lay on the floor? It doesn't have to be this big, like, oh, big song and dance and, like, get your guitar out and, like, put the word, like, just lie down and say, like, Jesus, I'd like to see your face today. I'd like you to come near to me. I'd like to let you know what I'm feeling. I'd like you to speak into my situation. I had this experience recently. Um, I've, I have been traveling for, I think, three weeks now, and it's been amazing and really full on, and I've been staying in different homes and with different people and with people that I love, so I want to connect and be with people, but I've had very little time to just sit with the Lord. And a couple, I think it was two weeks ago, I had one free night, and I was like, oh, I'm so tired. I can like, lie on the couch, and no one was home, and I can watch something. And I just felt this nudging, like, hey, why don't you like hang with me, i.e. the Holy Spirit, you know, like, hey, why don't we just, like, hang? And I thought, okay, I'm feeling tired. So I literally just crawled into the fetal position on my face on the floor and just was like, okay, I'm just going to, like, shut my eyes. And, but I'm seeking you, Lord, like, I'm tired. And I honestly was there for over an hour, just, like, enjoying the presence of God. And so much stuff came up that like, wow, Lord, you have taken me from being someone who doesn't know you to someone who does know you. You have shown me that I value you. You have shown me that you're real. And I was just reflecting on a lot of the stuff and I was weeping. I was just like, isn't this amazing? And I've got other decisions I'm fussing through at the moment and a whole lot of stuff that's been clouding my mind. And honestly, I don't think any of them even came into my brain while I was lying there. It was like, it was just, I was just caught up in like who God is and his goodness to me. And I need that every day. I don't get that every day, but we need that every day. And so let us not be afraid, as I said, to return and return and return again. Okay, so I am coming to a close. Um, so to sum it up, it's basically been summed up. But as we talk and think and practice um, loving people well and seeking first the kingdom and bearing patiently and humbly in our suffering, let us come back to the place where we remember Jesus and we don't act like Christians without the Christ. Let us come to him for him alone and not for him as a means to our end. The thing is he will take care of us. He will take care of our situations. He will provide, like that's who he is. But sometimes we come to him only for him to do that. Like let's come to him for who he is. And if we hope to be people who walk with Jesus for many years into our 60s, 70s and 80s, Let's make peace now with the idea that it's a continual returning. It's not like, hey, I had this cool experience two weeks ago and now I'm set for another year. Like, we can lose them in a week. You can lose them in a couple days and drift. And then you begin to fall into stuff that you didn't want to do and you become a boring compromiser. I am terrified of that happening to me, so I humbly say that. Okay, I have the last verse, seven and eight. I haven't even gone through the whole psalm, but you know what? That's fine. Um, from the King James Version, I picked this specifically because of this translation of verse 8. It says from verse 7, Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. And in closing, I found this tiny book of hymns in Dana's house. <laughs> it's literally this small. How cute is that? 
Anyway, and I was reading through it and I felt like there was a really great hymn to read over you. So I'm going to read it. It's kind of long, but not that long. I'm sure you have great attention spans. Um, <laughs> you can close your eyes. You can just listen. And it's really a blessing for all of us. I could not do without thee, O Saviour of the lost, whose, whose precious blood redeemed me at such tremendous cost. Thy righteousness, thy pardon, thy precious blood must be my only hope and comfort, my glory and my plea. I could not do without thee, I cannot stand alone. I have no strength or goodness, nor wisdom of my own. But thou, beloved Saviour, art all in all to me, and weakness will be power if leaning hard on thee. I could not do without thee, for oh, the way is long, and I am often weary, and sigh replaces song. How could I do without thee? I do not know the way. Thou knowest, and thou leadest, and will not let me stray. I could not do without thee, O Jesus, Saviour dear. Even when my eyes are holden, I know that thou art near. How dreary and how lonely this changeful life would be without the sweet communion, the secret rest with thee. I could not do without thee, no other friend can read the Spirit's strange deep longings, interpreting its need. No human heart could enter each dim recess of mine and soothe and hush and calm it, O blessed Lord, but thine. I could not do without thee, for years are fleeting fast, and soon in solemn loneliness the river must be passed. But thou wilt never leave me, and though the waves roll high, I know thou wilt be near me and whisper, it is I. Amen.